0: What can we learn from tragedies? That's the title of our sermon today. What can we learn from tragedies? Question that we ask when tragedies strike. <clears throat> and today we're going to talk about that from the 13th chapter of Luke. So let me share with you a couple of things that may jog our memory a bit. 2016, Hurricane Maria swept through Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Almost 3,000 people died. That same year in Orlando, the Pulse nightclub, Omar Mati went in with a gun and killed 49 people up to that point, deadliest shooting, mass shooting in modern U.S. history. A year later, 2017, we'd be horrified by the name Stephen Paddock, 64 years old, booked a room at the hotel and casino, killed 58 people during a concert, 500 people were injured. It's almost unfathomable. Same year, 2017, Sutherland Springs, an angry Devin Patrick Kelly goes into First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, opens fire, 28 people in that congregation died that day. Natural disaster, same year, 2018, forest fire in Paradise, California took the life of 85 people. September 2nd, 2019, the sinking of a boat off Santa Cruz, 34 died. 2020, the inaugural year of COVID-14, depends how we count these, I understand that, but without even throwing a number out, a lot of people, some of whom I know personally, have died from COVID-19. Now that's the United States just over the last six years. That's not the rest of the world. We haven't even gone into those statistics. We haven't even talked about world history, like six million Jewish people dying in the Holocaust, 20 million under Stalin, not to mention the killing fields in uh, Rwanda, so we struggle, understandably, we as Christians, along with the rest of the world, we struggle when it comes to thinking about tragedy, and, and we have to think about how do we Christians respond to catastrophe, and how do we respond to struggle, and that, uh, to, to tragedy, and that brings us to the text today. So I want to give you just two struggles that we have before we get to the main part of what Jesus says. There are two things that every Christian is going to wrestle through. The first one is this. We have to work through what I call general tragedy. General tragedy. In other words, just at the surface level when bad things happen, it kind of jogs our spirit and really makes us wrestle with why these things have taken place. Now when we hear the word evil in English, that has moral connotations, right? Right? Uh, that's an evil man. You don't say things like, that's an evil hurricane, or, you know, that's evil pestilence. But, you know, in the Old Testament, these were kind of brought together. Uh, the same Hebrew word, ra'ah, that would be a word that would describe moral evil, as well as natural disaster evil, or any kind. So, example, if, you, if somebody killed someone, that's ra'ah, that's evil. If someone had a miscarriage, that could also be considered evil. Uh, If a husband or a wife killed their spouse or killed a neighbor, that would be evil. See, a lot of these, uh, the, the, the problem of evil in the Bible is very broad. So just to let you know, when you hear Christians talking about the problem of evil, we are often talking about the problem of evil and suffering. We're talking about why tragedies take place regardless of the nature of those tragedies. And it's interesting that in our passage here, Jesus actually addresses both kinds, doesn't he? The first one, what we think about, is a natural disaster. A tower at Siloam falls on people, and what does it kill? 18 people. And then there's an evil man named Pilate, and Pilate kills some Galileans and mixes their blood in a sacrifice. So we have an evil man, and we have an evil falling of the tower here, in the Hebrew sense of the word. Both of these are catastrophes, and both of these are challenges to our Christian faith. We struggle as Christians when these things happen. I mean, we think about Habakkuk. How long, O Lord, must I cry for help? How long will violence be out in the streets? The law is slack. It never goes forth. Habakkuk is crying out, not frankly because of pain in his own life, because he sees it in the world. I've been a pastor for, you know, like almost 24 years. You get to talk to a lot of people about faith. That's a privilege of being a pastor. I meet very few people that really struggle with things they tell me they're struggling with. So a conversation starts off where somebody says something like, oh, I am not a Christian because I don't believe in miracles. And we'll talk about that for you know, as long as they'd like to. Or, you know, I don't believe in God because I believe in science. You hear things like that. What about contradictions in the Bible? The longer the conversation goes on, the more I realize, I don't even know if they've thought it through at a deeper level because sometimes we don't as people. The problem is really not that they think there's contradictions in the Bible, The problem is they were hurt five years ago, or their mom passed away, or they lost a child, or something like that. Deep down, they're wrestling with the problem of evil and suffering, and they don't know how to come to grips with it. That's true of many of us. People don't really lose their faith over the trivial things that we kind of hear about out in the news. What really rocks our faith, and this is the bedrock of atheism in my opinion, is the suffering that we have to deal with, and how we try to answer for that suffering. But it's even worse than what we'll call general suffering. There's something else going on in this text, and it's this. I'm going to use a fancy word and try to explain it for us, but this is the only way I can comprehend it, and it's this. We struggle with the asymmetrical nature of suffering. What do I mean by that? Suffering is distributed in a way that just doesn't seem to make any sense. It's not just that the tower fell on 18 people. Why did it fall on those 18 people? When, let's be honest, if we read the passage, it probably should have fallen on who? Pilate. He's the one mixing the blood of the Galileans. Why did these Galileans have their blood mixed in? Now let's remember that these are the righteous people. These are good people that are worshiping God. And while supposedly they're in the act of worshiping God or something associated with religion, they are slaughtered and their blood is mixed in with some kind of sacrifice by Pilate. It's not just general suffering that people suffer with. It's the asymmetrical nature of suffering. It's why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things seem to happen to bad people? That's what's going on in this text. That's what's under people's skin. It's not just that these events took place, but what should have happened to those 18 people didn't, at least in their minds. And what should have happened to Pilate, he's frankly the one that should have been judged. So we struggle with suffering. So I want to talk about how Jesus helps us navigate through suffering and through catastrophe. Um, How he can give us the grace and strength when we endure, when we see it. And by the way, I want to remind, there are a lot of passages that tell us how to deal with suffering when it comes into your life. Those are really important. This is the passage that actually tells us how to deal with tragedy when it happens in somebody else's life, and you get it through your newsfeed, right? Because they're not the people that the tower fell on, but some of them may have known these people, or they at least got news of this. So how do we deal with tragedy and suffering? And the first one, I think, might be the most important thing I can say, and it's this. I want us to notice that Jesus and the biblical writers are relentless in their interaction with the problem of suffering. They're absolutely relentless with their interaction with the problem of suffering. Now, let me kind of set a stage for what happens here in the Bible and in this text. The problem of suffering is public. This is very important. It's public. You're a Christian. You need to answer for why there's suffering in the world. If you're an atheist you also need to answer for the problem of suffering. You should answer for the problem, or you have to answer for the problem of suffering. If you're a Hindu, if you're Buddhist, if you're secular humanist, if you call yourself agnostic, it's public knowledge. It's not like just suffering happens when you're a Christian. Suffering happens everywhere, and so all of us have to deal, we're forced to deal, a better way to put it, with the problem of suffering. Now here's a move that people make in the West I'm not sure it's made everywhere else. It might be. But here's the move that's made in the West. And here's my observation. What happens is suffering comes into the life of somebody in the United States. And what they do is they say something like, I don't believe in God anymore. I'm now going to abandon Christianity. But what they have yet to do is ask how their new system of belief answers for the problem of suffering. See, that's what's happening in our culture. People move away from Christianity because they're suffering in the world, but they never ask how secular humanism answers for suffering. Or they say, "Well, I'm going to become an agnostic." You didn't answer the question. You just rephrased it. How does agnosticism answer for? How does agnosticism answer for when the baby dies? I don't believe in God anymore because of suffering. I don't believe in God. I'm now an atheist. How does atheism answer when the tower falls on 18 people? It's public. That's the problem. It's not as easy as just changing your religion or changing your philosophy. The question is not, can Christianity answer for the problem of suffering? It's how well does it answer for the problem of suffering in light of everything else? That's really the question that I wrestle with a lot. And so we have to be careful. There's uh, the famous atheist Jules Barn, Jules who, who's an atheist, but he's a very honest one. And I love good interactions with, with thoughtful people. And There's a famous story about Jules Barnes, it it may be apocryphal, I don't know, but he's at some social gathering, and there's a man there that's just bashing religion, you know, ah, Christianity's the worst, Islam's the worst, look at all the bad things happening in the world because of religious people, the same stuff that, you know, you might hear from a neighbor or something like that. And Jules Barnes is an atheist just like this man, but his blood starts to boil, you know, And Jules Barnes lashes out and shuts the man down and undresses him right in front of the entire crowd. Now why would Jules Barnes do that? He would do that because Jules Barnes understands that you are tearing apart religion, but you don't understand the problems that atheism has in answering with suffering. And frankly, Jules Barnes has thought this through a little bit more than the man he's dressing down. He realized the man was applying questions to religious people, that he had not had the courage to reply, uh, apply to non-religious ideas. And I know what I'm saying may do a little bit of this to some of us. I'm going to beg you to think deeply on at least what I'm trying to communicate here. Because what a lot of people say, again, is I don't like suffering, therefore I'm going to move away from God. I, I've, I know, I get it, but I'm just going to tell you, I hate suffering and that's what's moved me over the years towards God. And it's actually something that's kept me in the faith because I believe and I'm open to this, I'm not saying I'm like the answer to everything, but I have come to a point in my life where I see that Jesus and the apostles wrestle with suffering, they wrestle with tragedy and they wrestle with evil throughout the scriptures in a way that I don't see other systems doing that. I don't see secular humanism putting the rigor into the questions that somebody like Habakkuk did, or Jesus did, or you find in the book of Job. Christianity offers an explanation on the origin of suffering. It offers an answer on the problem of suffering, at least some of it. It gives us a solution. It gives us case studies like Job. This ancient wisdom that you and I have before us, that comes to us from God, is rigorous in its approach. And frankly, when I look out into the secular world, there's a lot of things I like about the secular world. I could give you the short list here sometime if you want, but I don't think secular humanism has a lot to say when it comes to suffering. Next time a tragedy takes place and one is inevitably going to come, Fox News, CNN, MSN, all the major news networks are going to bring people on. They're going to interview those people and they're going to say, why did this take place? And for the first time in a few years, you know what they're going to do? They're going to pull the religious community in. Because a local guy at the college that's a secular humanist, he doesn't have an answer. Watch when it happens. What are they doing when they bring the rabbi on? They're borrowing from the religion that they reject. What do they do when they bring the priest or the pastor on? It's a silent confession that secular humanism has not wrestled through these things to the point where the religious community has. And I'm speaking, of course, as a Christian. Christianity does not answer all of the questions that we have for suffering. I'm going to concede that point in a couple of minutes, I promise. But I, And I don't want to oversell this. It's not if you read the Bible, you're going to have all your questions answered, because you're not. That said, Christianity interacts with evil in a substantial way. It interacts with suffering in a substantial way. And it gives us a tremendous amount of light. Not all the light. We're going to have to wait to see Jesus to ask some hard questions, maybe. But it gives us some great grace and strength that we need. And I want to go into the second point here. Let's talk about wrong takes on tragedy. Not only do we learn that Jesus and the apostles wrestle with the problem of suffering, but they give us some ideas that we need to be cautious about. The first one is this, and I'll give you three. We're going to call it a religious worldview. Religious worldview. Now, first of all, religious worldview, by the way, is tragedies happen to bad people, right? That tower fell because those 18 people are bad. The Galileans, they got their blood mixed in. They probably had secret sin in their life. We don't exactly know the Galilean incident. Here's what we think. Here's what historians tell us. About this time, um, the, uh, Pilate wanted to build some, some aqueducts and wanted to do a kind of a new water system in Jerusalem, which is a very good project. But what he did is he started taxing the temple in order to get the money to build it. And so, of course, the Jewish people, that temple taxes, that's a big deal to them. And so they start doing these kinds of protests. They're out in the streets. They're protesting. They're not letting the work go on. And so what Pilate did is he sent a bunch of soldiers in, and they actually left their swords. They brought their clubs And as soon as the protests began, they started to slaughter the Jewish people in the streets. Now, when it says he mingled their blood with the sacrifices, that means one of two things. Either one, he literally took their blood during the Passover season and mingled it with the sacrifice. Or number two, it's metaphorical. Like blood spilled while the Passover was taken. We're not sure which one. But the point being is that it's, it's a terrible, tragic, evil thing that took place. And then the Tower of Siloam's. a lot of people believe is related. The aqueducts take what's called scaffoldings. It's called a tower in our scripture. Scaffling is the idea. And maybe there were some people working on it, and the scaffolding broke or fell and crushed people in the process. 18 people died. And it's a reminder, if nothing else, that life is short. Life is tragic. You know what the nature of a tragedy is? The day before it happened, you had no idea it was going to take place value your relationship with God, value the love you have with other people. Now, what does a religious worldview mean? Bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. It fell on the 18 people because they had secret sin. They weren't right before God, you know. There's a, when I played softball years ago, I played with a a lot of Christians in South Carolina. We had a team and it was almost all Christians, I think. And I had a lot of fellowship and fun. And we used to joke with each other, you know. This guy would hit a home run. And somebody would elbow the guy and go, he's prayed up. <laughs> he's, he's, or he'd make a great defensive play. This guy is right with God, you know. It's a little joke. But that kind of irony is what we're talking about here. You got a raise. You want to know why? Because you're a good person on the inside. You got cut from your job. You want to know why? You have secret sin in your life. That's what's going on. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. That's the music in the background behind John 4. Why was this man born blind? Because of the sin of his parents? Or did he sin himself? This is Eliphaz in the book of Job. Who is innocent that ever perished? This is the non-Christian people, non-Jewish people on the island of Malta when a snake comes out and bites Paul on the hand. And what did they immediately say? Justice got him. Obviously, he's not living right. This is Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood, perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For you who are here standing, loving me, whether or not you should, but somewhere in my childhood or youth, I must have done something good. Religious worldview, this is the default of the human heart. I remember when 9-11 happened, the tragedy with the towers, and if you flip to one news station... You had someone like Pat Robertson saying some like, something like, God is judging America for its sexual immorality, or something like that. And then you flip to another station, and you have somebody else, another reverend, saying something like, God is judging America for the birth defect, racism, or taking advantage of poor people. Now, whether or not one of those is true, I'm not, I'd like, push that from your mind because you'll miss what I'm saying. The point is, they're both, they're both saying the same thing. They're both saying the same thing, they're just applying it differently both of the good reverends are simply saying what happened at 9-11 is because of America's sin, which may or may not be true. My point is, you don't know. (laughs) But they're making the same theological statement, one from the right, one from the left. You see, we have to be careful about this. That's the reflex of the human heart. And by the way, if God dealt with us this way, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, don't kid yourself. You would not be on the good side of that one we'd all be judged. The tower would fall on all of us. That's kind of the point of what Jesus is saying. So we got to be careful of the religious world, but we also have to be careful of what we'll call the secular worldview. The secular worldview is like, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Evolutionary biology, life is hard. Look at the animal kingdom. Look how unevenly distributed suffering and prosperity is in a natural world. This is Richard Dawkins. This is frankly Jordan Peterson. There's no rhyme or reason to why there's suffering in the world. And nothing good, could all suffering is senseless, nothing good could ever come out of it. But Jesus doesn't take the secular narrative either. He believes there is redemptive purpose in suffering, as we'll see in this text. And then, of course, there's the third move, which we call the agnostic. That's where we throw our hands up and simply say, eh, what's the point of even asking the hard questions? We don't know why there's senseless suffering in the world, why even ask? Thomas Nagel, who was an atheist slash agnostic, one that I always enjoyed reading. I remember he's got a little writing where he says, does it even matter that it doesn't matter? He says, it's not enough, or rather, it's enough that I get to the station before my train leaves. It's enough that I remember to feed the cat. He says, but. He says, um, what you need to do, this kind of line of thinking, only works when you don't set your sights higher and don't ask what's the point of the whole thing. That's an agnostic approach to the world. Jesus on suffering. Jesus is not going to give us the religious worldview. He's not secular humanist. Nor is Jesus an agnostic. He's going to give us some answers here. So what does Jesus tell us about suffering? And this is the bulk of what I want to tick through here a little bit. I'll do it quickly, though. Number one. Jesus here is teaching us that we have to learn to deal with mystery or live with mystery. We as Christians, you're going to have to learn to live with some mystery about suffering. Understandably, when tragedy strikes, we all want to know why. I want to know why this happened, personally or corporately or nationally or universally. I want to know why it happened. You want to know why it happened. But at the end of the day, we are not privy to all the answers. And I want to know... Notice in the text, it's worth taking note that with all that's happened with these two tragedies, Jesus never really comes out and tells you why. He doesn't come out and say, well, I'm going to answer all your questions. Who's first? First reporter. He doesn't do that. Nowhere in Scripture does it do that. There is a mystery to suffering from the Scriptures that we want to recognize. We, you and I understand, to a large degree, why Job suffered in the book of Job. Job was not privy to that. (laughs) Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all prophets that suffered a lot, but they were not privy. We even have more light than they had. I can only tell you that in my journey as a Christian, somewhere along the way, I had to repent of the idol of knowledge, where, Lord, I will go through any suffering you put in my life as long as you tell me why it's there. It's an idol of knowledge. And as long as I ask that question or have that posture, I might as well throw in a towel on my own faith. Because you have to learn to deal with some mystery and live with some mystery. Number two is this the most courageous thing you and I can do in time of su- a tragedy, when we see tragedy, is self reflection. Self reflection. Now, if Jesus told me about Pilate and told me about the 18, I would say, that is really sad what happened to the 18 people. And then I'd point my finger at Pilate and say, if that guy doesn't repent, he's going to perish. That's what I would do. He's a bad guy. He brought violence into the world. The easiest thing to do when a tragedy takes place is point the finger at someone or some group. I'm not saying that Pilate shouldn't be held accountable for this, and he will before God someday, right? Christians believe that. But at the end of the day, Jesus does not let them off the hook by getting self-righteous at Pilate, does he? Jesus looks at them and says, unless you repent, you yourself will perish. Keeping the finger pointed at Pilate doesn't transform anyone. All it does is push them into some mold of self-righteousness, and that's dangerous. So we got to be careful. The the most important thing we can do is self-reflection. And I want to add reflect before the tragedy comes into your life. At some point, you're going to undergo a tragedy. Everybody, if nothing else, it's the last day of your life. You're going to have a tragedy, you know? When we see tragedy happen in the news or in our community, the things that I mentioned or other things. You see your friend's life, you know, where they're really struggling. That's the time to do personal reflection, not when it hits you. That's what's taking place. That's why Solomon said, I thought it was up last week, that it's better to go to a funeral than the house of feasting, because the living will lay it to heart. Number three, tragedy is an opportunity to prioritize your relationship with God. It's an opportunity to prioritize your relationship with God. The most important need in our life is a relationship with God. This kind of goes back to what I said at the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? That the modern Western world tells us just to focus on what's here. That We're the first culture in the history of the world that's messaged that. You are messaged that by the news, your neighbors, school system, government, everybody. Like it, The religious communities, and I think specifically the church, is trying to send a different message. But the rest of the world is saying the most important thing is your personal happiness, it's how you feel, it's how much money you make, and things like that. But the most eternal thing we have is our relationship with God. And so Jesus makes a lesson out of this, and he tells us to prioritize. He looks at the people, and what does he say? Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You need to reflect. You need to repent. You need to think about your relationship with God. If I wasn't familiar with this event, I don't know what I'd expect Jesus to say, but I think it sounds a little bit insensitive what he's saying. Is that fair? feels that way to me. A tower fell on 18 people. The blood of the Galileans was mixed into sacrifices. And the first thing I would expect Jesus to say is, isn't that terrible? Because that's a reasonable response. I'm so sorry to hear this. What a horrible tragedy. I can't believe this happened. Our thoughts and prayers are with those people. That is the first move we all make. It's the right move, by the way. You know what Jesus does here? Jesus looks at the crowd and says, unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. He wants them to think about their relationship with God. As important as it is to even mourn about a tragedy, we want to think about our relationship with God. I mean, think about when Jesus is on the way to the cross. He's going to be nail spiked. He's already hurt. He's bruised. He's bleeding. It's a terrible, awful scene. There are these daughters of Jerusalem, which is a group of women that would follow people to the crucifixions. They are weeping and wailing and offering Jesus some kind of medication. And Jesus looks at them and says, what? Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Wow. Again, it almost sounds insensitive, but that's the priority Jesus places on a relationship with God. Christ is not being insensitive here. Jesus is telling them the most important thing that they can know. that Someday, everybody stands before God and gives an account. And our concern ought to be where our hearts are in our relationship with God. That brings us to this fourth point about repentance. Tragedy is an impetus for repentance. It's an impetus. In repentance, we change our minds, we change our hearts, and we change our actions. I'd like to say in that order, but sometimes it doesn't work that way. Sometimes you don't want to change your heart, but you know you need to, so you change your actions. And uh, you say, well, that's hypocrisy. Not according to James. James says, if you've got to go to the back door, go the back door. James makes the point and says this. He says, blessed is the one that looks into the law of liberty, for in that he is blessed in the deed. In the deed. In other words, I don't feel like looking into the law of liberty, but the individual did, and he's blessed in the deed while he's actually doing it. Ideally, we change our minds, we change our hearts, we change our actions. But if you've got to go through the back door, friend, don't think that's hypocrisy. That's obeying God. Boy, if you wait for your heart to change before you do the right thing, you're going to be waiting an awful long time. I, frankly, I'm glad a lot of my relationships are not like that. I'm glad my friends, when, when they want to be mean, don't say, well, I'm gonna, I don't want to be a hypocrite, you know, and they start lashing out at people. It's a good thing to act righteously and work on our hearts in the process. The prophets in the Old Testament talk about this, by the way. When God says, your heart is far from me, you're bringing me those bad sacrifices, he never says, don't bring those sacrifices anymore. What does he say? Change your heart along the way. <laughs> you know, Keep doing the right thing, but change your heart along the way. So Jesus here believes that we are putting the focus on the wrong person. We're not supposed to blame Pilate. Don't get me wrong. You can blame Pilate and work on your heart at the same time. Pilate is responsible here. So we're not letting anybody off without due justice in that legal way. But in the spiritual way, we as God's people need to make sure that we're not just pointing fingers when things happen in the community, but we're actually taking the time to self-reflect on our relationship with God. Last point is this. Lean into the hope we have for change. Look at verse um, 8 and 9. This is that little parable I wanted to put this on. He told them a parable. Verse 6, a man had planted a fig tree in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I can find none. Cut it down. Why should it be used, used up the ground? So a man plants a tree. The tree's not bearing any fruit. It's just draining nutrients from the ground. And he says, I'm just going to cut it down. But then... Uh, The owner, verse 8, and he answered him, said, Sir, let alone this year also, until I dig around it and put up manure. And if it should bear fruit next year, well, and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. What we're learning here is this, that God is very patient with us. And this is good. That when God doesn't see fruit in our lives, he doesn't just immediately cut us down. (laughs) That's a good thing. When God sees it in the world, he doesn't just immediately cut it down. Now, I know when you and I look out, sometimes we're like, God, why won't you deal with that? You know, like Habakkuk. I get that. But we've got to come to appreciate the long-suffering of God. When we don't appreciate it for other people, let's at least appreciate it for ourselves. <laughs> Where we realize that if God cut down all evil immediately in the world, we'd be in trouble also. Because we've fallen short of his glory. There's inactivity in the tree. By the way, 1 Peter 3 talks about the timing and the long suffering of God. One question is this. Where is the promise of his coming? The people are saying. And Peter answers in the long, long passage and says, we account that as a long suffering of God. It's a great place in Revelation where Jezebel is just wreaking havoc in a church. And what does it say? I gave her, you know this language? Space to repent. And I say, thank you, Lord, for giving us space to repent. That's what's happening in the text. Something hidden in this passage that when I say it to you, you're going to go, oh, I needed that. Okay, here it is, because somebody said it to me well, through a book, and so I'm sharing it with you, and it's this. As painful as the tragedies are, tragedies, they hold out hope for change. See, here's the point. What is overlooked in this parable, and I've overlooked it for a long time, but now it's very obvious Embedded in the words of Jesus, the parable is holding out change for a tree that has been sterile or infertile or hasn't had fruit in years. You see what I'm saying? In other words, change is possible in lives and communities even when you see no evidence of it. Even when your grandkid shows no evidence of it. Even when your mother looks like Jonah running from the Lord. Even when your child, even when your friend, even where your community. I don't always see it. I look out into our world and I don't see it. All I see is bad news that comes and more bad news. It's the point where I just don't even open the feed anymore because I know what I'm going to get. Goodness, I'm at the point sometimes where I'm looking at puppy videos on Instagram just to get a smile at something good happening in the world, you know? I think a lot of us are like that. I just want to smile, you know, so let me go pet my dog. We don't see a lot of hope for change in our world sometimes. That's why I love this passage. What does the vine dresser say? No, no, leave it there longer because I believe there's a chance that thing is going to grow fruit. Tremendous opportunity for change in tragedy. And so we as Christians hold on to that. Last thought I have, it's not on the slide, but it's a point that I would think is very important The gospel gives us tremendous hope for change. The gospel gives us comfort for change. See, what's happening in this passage is this, in the big picture. What's happening in the big picture is people are wrestling on why evil has come to the world and why there's tragedy and suffering in the world. And Jesus is not giving them all the answers that they, I think, want to hear. But what he has done in this passage, right to the cross and right where he's crucified, is he has joined the same suffering of the world. You see it? In other words, Jesus doesn't tell us why there's tragedies in the world, but he says, I love the world so much that I am willing to undergo my own tower experience. I'm willing to go undergo Pilate's brutal hand for you. I don't know why God allows suffering in the world. There's a mystery there. I got some answers, but I don't have all of them. But it can't be because of indifference. It can't be because he doesn't love you. And because he doesn't love me. And because he doesn't have a plan for the world. It has to be because he cares about the world. Because he himself suffered in the world for us. There's an existential answer here. I don't know where else you get this in any philosophy or religion except Christianity. That even though you don't get all the answers, you get a comfort knowing that your Savior underwent the same suffering that you yourself are feeling and you experience and see in other people. You may not get all the answers, but I'll give you a why not. It's not because he doesn't love you. It's not because he doesn't care about you. And it's not because he's letting the world spin out of control. The gospel teaches us otherwise. Father... We open a deep subject today, one that we could never exhaust. But we get some direction from Jesus. And I pray this direction would help us in our own walk with you. Help us, Lord, to focus on that incarnation and cross that reminds us that Christ suffered for us. I pray it strengthen us, encourage us, help us to be the people you've redeemed us to be. I pray, God, as we sing Be Thou My Vision, You would be our vision. We'd set our minds on things above, not just here. Bless this church. Help us to walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen.